You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? Her name means Kal, which is time. She includes everything, life and death. She includes hope and hopelessness. She's light and she's dark. There is no part of our human lives that are excluded from her adoration. Anything that we want to cut away, she says, that too is my child. She's so whole. She's so complete. She's that terrifying. She's the fullness of the divine. She's everything the divine is not supposed to be. She's dark. She's dirty. She's angry. She's hungry. She's naked. She's cutting off heads because only the heart can see rightly. And it is time for us to speak from the heart, to rise from the heart, to cut off the head which has been leading us in this direction of madness and she is furious because her world is almost destroyed you see Durga which is the divine feminine in the Hindu tradition she's beautiful she's dressed in red and pink and she's riding in on a tiger not unlike the marches of women riding in on pussy riot we are all in pink and red So she rides in, there's Shiva and Durga, and they're fighting this battle against the demons of ego, against the demons of greed, against the demons of separation. And they're powerful, however, they begin to understand that every time they wound a great demon with every drop of blood, a thousand more demons emerge. And anyone who knows a malignant narcissist might know something about that. And they are realizing that they are losing because every time it appears they're winning, more demons arise. And so in the last hour, and make no mistake, we are in the late, late hour now. From within Durga, 
a deeper, more fierce form of the divine feminine rises from her head, and that is Kali, and that is the Dark Mother, and that is the force of sacred activism, of broken-hearted, tender-hearted, fierce motherhood, from which we too must rise. And she says, no, not this time, not my children, and she saves the world. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on, because you're in for a howling ride. Because I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears, but your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. My guests today are Linda and Charlie Bloom. They are psychotherapists and couples counselors. They've been leading couples workshops for about 30 years, and they're the authors of several books on relationships. Their latest is What Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places, about their journey through the underworld of relationship hell and what they learn from the experience and what they bring to their work with their clients and their workshops. Linda and Charlie Bloom, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. First off, I love the book. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. I was so moved and impressed by the way the two of you held on through thick and thin and, and just kept working through everything. It was a lot of work. <laughs> and, I mean, it was so much more than just surviving that ordeal. It was really about coming through it not only stronger, but with so much more resources and creativity and what you could bring and offer to other people coming from that, that journey through the underground, so to speak. Yeah, we took the descent into the hell realms all right, and... <laughs> One of the cornerstones of what we teach now is about using all that crappy stuff in your life to really grow and to use it for compost to bloom out of. So it's definitely foundational in the work we do now. So I was thinking that we could begin with Charlie describing how you went from being what Linda called a laid-back guitar-picking hippie to a hardcore company man swaggering around in a three-piece suit and what kept you in the fold after your family and relationship started disintegrating? Wow, <laughs> that's a powerful question and I'll try to give you the short version of the answer. As it turned out, to my surprise, that part of me had been in there all along. The part that was ambitious and ego focused, and although what Linda saw and what I experienced most of the time was the laid-back part of myself, some of that was 
just kind of a way of concealing the other part, which I really had kind of demonized. And, you know, the part of me that was ambitious and really materialistic. So when I did the training, I was able to experience that there was more to me than just the image that I presented to myself and to other people. And I also saw that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing that I, I had that aspect of me. And I gave myself permission to own it and to, you know, not to feel shame about it and not to judge it, but to really, uh, in some ways, indulge it. So when I had the opportunity to take a job that allowed me to really indulge that part of myself, it felt very gratifying. Like, wow, this is something that has been there all along and I've been concealing it and feeling ashamed about it. And now it's okay. In fact, I can use that part of me to really influence people in a positive way and make a big difference in the world, hopefully, which is what really initially drew me to the job was was this sense that this work that I was doing, that I experienced when I did the training myself, was really not only life-changing for people, because it had been for me, but that I could see how if everyone was able to live more in alignment with all of themselves, that it could really be world-changing too, not just life-changing. So that was the Kool-Aid that I drank, you know, that this is it, this is what the world needs. And I completely agreed with that, bought into it. And I was just immersed in that culture. I mean, as the book reveals, I had some really mixed feelings about it. I was conflicted because of the conflict between the requirement for absolute commitment to the work and also commitment to my family. And it seemed like the company really had very little, if any, regard for one's personal family life. So that was a struggle for me throughout. Yeah, it was a strange kind of irony in the way they approached their teaching or the way they implemented it. Linda, what was it like for you watching this? I mean, you went through the training with Charlie and you watched all of this unfold and you saw the positive side of that as well. I saw both sides. I saw how powerful the training was for both of us, how freed up we were, how willing to risk we were, what kind of creative imagining and visioning. It really freed us up in big ways. So I have, still have, a deep debt of gratitude to the training. The training was a powerful, influential, life-changing. Not only for me, I sent a bunch of friends and they had life-changing experiences, but once we relocated from the East Coast and we came out here and lived in California and Charlie was on the road and I got more intimately acquainted with the inner workings of the company, I could see that the way the company was operating was quite different than the power and the beauty of the training and that there was a real shadow side. There was the worst corporate life, the way they had a utilitarian orientation about the people who work there. They just bring them in, 
use them up, toss them out, bring in the new recruits, use them up, toss them out. And as I got to see the inner workings of the company over the time that Charlie worked there, I got more and more disillusioned and stopped putting people in the trainings. And I didn't even want to attend social events. I didn't do that very often. But the part that was really mind-blowing was seeing the personality transformation that happened with Charlie because I was pretty careful to pick a guy that I thought was going to be laid-back family man, you know, who'd be at the dinner table every night and help the kids with their homework and read them stories and give them baths and put them in their pajamas and tuck them in at night. And when he was this, you know, striving corporate guy, I just... Who is this man? I didn't even know this guy. Because it was a part of him that he didn't know either. You know, and it was pretty shocking, and it really rocked our world. And, Charlie, you loved that experience of power and sense of self. And you stuck with it for about seven years. Um, about six. Six. six years. Yeah, I stuck with it for a long time, and yes... I did love it. When I was in front of the room and I was leading the seminars, I was really in, much of the time, I was in an altered state. I mean, I really felt like this is what I was born to do. And I had never felt that before in my life. I had always worked in areas that were service-oriented. You know, I had been a therapist, I had been an educator, a teacher. You know, I had always been geared towards being in service and helping people. But I had never experienced this level of exuberance and elation and ease. I mean, when I really did after about a year, year and a half, and I felt very, very comfortable and confident, I just felt like I was in a flow state most of the time. I was just absolutely doing what I was on the planet to do. And it felt very, very right and that feeling was so compelling that i think you know to respond to your question earlier but why did i stay with it even though i knew that the family was suffering i mean Linda made me real aware of that and i could tell when i was home that you know there was some stress in the family and strife i kept rationalizing it to myself that this is not a permanent thing if we can just get through this i'm going to move on and I'll finally have control over my life schedule and I'll be able to be home on my terms or live the life that I want to and live the timetable that I want to. But it just seemed like to Linda and to me too, <laughs> it's taken a little longer to get to that point than I thought it was going to take. But as you know from reading the book, I did get to that point and I kept telling Linda when she was saying, you know, this is just not working and I would say, I'm just not ready to leave yet, but I know that I will be ready to leave at some point when I feel like I've, I've experienced and learned and accomplished what I need to on this job, but I'm not ready. And I promise you that when that time comes, I won't stay another minute, but I'm not ready. And it was true. I mean, that's really how it worked out. I literally made that decision in a moment and quit the next day. That was it. But we went through quite an ordeal prior to that time. Could you take us into that descent into hell that, that you both went through and, and that your children went through as well as a result of that? 
before we make the journey back up. Yeah. The descent into hell was partially characterized by my extreme loneliness because I'm a real togetherness person. So having Charlie on the road three weeks out of every month was extreme deprivation for me. A different kind of wife that's more independent may have not suffered as much, but I'm all about partnership and romance and touch and looking into each other's eyes and to have him gone so much. The loneliness was just excruciating for me. When he would come home, I'd be tired from taking care of the three kids, being pretty much a single parent most of the time. And he was tired from working an 80-hour week with the commute. And so we were both kind of at low, you know, not much in the tank. And so the little time that he was home, we were often irritable from fatigue. And we had some really ugly, ugly, ugly fights. I wasn't aware of the title of the syndrome at the time. It wasn't until after he resigned from the corporation that I learned the title corporate marriage syndrome. And that's when the corporation demands that every employee have their first priority be the company and family must be relegated to inferior status. And I really felt that. I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel prized. I didn't feel honored the way I felt like wife and the mother of the children ought to be. And I was really resentful of being demoted. The other part was that I had left the East Coast where all my family and friends lived, and I had grief about not having enough support and community when we moved, and it took a while to put that together. And I also didn't feel like I could continue my career as a therapist because my life wasn't working. I felt like it was too much out of integrity to be advising anybody about how to have their life work when mine didn't. So there were multiple factors that gave rise to the depth of unhappiness. There was a rumor that went around in the company that all of the trainers screwed around. And I lived in pretty chronic fear that it was just a matter of time until infidelity polished us off. That never happened, but I lived with a lot of anxiety about it because of all of this rumor mongering about You know how they say the sailors have a a woman in every port? There was a rumor about the the trainers having women in the other cities where they would fly around the country. So there were multiple factors. The loneliness, the resentment, the grief about living, you know, a life that I didn't want to live. And this anxiety and fear that I lived in that we were on the brink of divorce all the time. Now, we were with the company for over five years. And we were there long enough that some of the trainers in the trainer department not only got divorced one time, but got divorced two times. So I lived with this idea that we were the next ones to go the way of the separation and divorce statistics. So I was not thriving during that time. I was just surviving and getting by. And we had some really nasty, ugly fights. And one of the worst ones that we ever had was when they had a mandatory all-day meeting on the 4th of July. And I was incredulous, and I said, what is wrong with these people that they don't honor a traditional family, you know, holiday? 
And the message was very loud and clear. Your family's needs and your own personal needs need to be subsidiary to the company's demands. And I just felt that this was an awful way to be living and I wasn't sure how long I was going to be able to bear it before I had to bail just for my own survival. Fortunately, Charlie woke up in the nick of time. <laughs> he left just before I completely ran out of patience. So how did that change occur? What happened for you, Charlie? What was it that helped you see things in a new light? Well, it was both a gradual awakening and a sudden realization. After being there for a few years, it had become apparent to me that I couldn't change the system. I was, uh, <laughs> I was grandiose enough to think that if I stick around here, I can really change this system so that it's more humane and there's more integrity to it. Because like Linda, I was aware that it wasn't just the conflict that I was experiencing wasn't just about the family life versus the corporation, the company. It was also about the way the company itself was run, the politics of it. And I had naively assumed when I started working for the company that this organization was run on the basis of the principles that were taught in the training, you know, about integrity and honesty and authenticity and respect. And I mean, I just assumed that. Well, <laughs> it uh, didn't turn out to be the case. And so... You know, when I began to see that after being there for a little while, I just got this crazy idea that I can help to bring this company into integrity and then they'll be even more successful than they are now. And that turned out to be a total illusion. I didn't have the power to do that. I don't think any single person would. And so when I realized that, then I, that's when I started to see that my days are numbered here. Because, I mean, that on top of the other struggle that I was having was making it really difficult to keep rationalizing being there. And so I was beginning to see that it's just a matter of time. And I was kind of uh, probably by the end of the third year, beginning of the fourth year, I was starting to emotionally disengage. I could keep doing the work I was doing. And I was still committed to doing that, but my loyalty to the company wasn't as strong. So that was weakening. And then at the same time, of course, our situation at home was getting worse, and that was getting harder for me to deal with. And one of the things that Linda did to try to salvage things is she brought assistance into our family and marriage. And one of the forms that that took was she registered us for a couple of workshops for couples, and one of them we went to probably about two or three years into it, and then the other one we went to a couple of years later, and at the second one that we went to, I had an awakening. That's when I had this sudden, dramatic realization that I can't do this anymore, and the way it happened was we were there with 20 other couples, and the couples were there for different reasons. Some were there because they were struggling with issues, although it didn't seem like any of them were in the kind of shape that we were in. And some of them just were there for marriage enrichment. Some of them had been together a long time. Some of them were in new stages of relationship. But it was during that weekend workshop 
where I had the realization. My focus had been so much on trying to help Linda to deal with this situation that I hadn't really looked at what it was costing me personally to continue living in this very dysfunctional way with us being a very fragmented family. I hadn't really considered that, I mean, I knew that the kids were suffering. I knew that Linda was suffering. I didn't realize what I was missing though. And I had this realization as I was listening to some of the men in the workshop who had been where I was and had lost their marriages because they had stayed in too long and couldn't get it back and the grief that they experienced. As I was listening to them, I realized, Jesus, that's me. I mean, I'm really at risk of losing this whole thing. And it's like, I should have known that, but I didn't. I was so caught up in the company's version of how I was supposed to be and do things and see things. I hadn't even considered that. And it hit me. I mean, it was like somebody dropped a boulder on me. It just was overwhelming. And it was in that moment, I had the experience of feeling the depth and the extent of the loss, the losses that I had experienced over the last six years, over not being home and not being able to be more with Linda, not being able to go to the kids' games, not being able to have meals together, not being able to take family vacations. You know, just all that I had missed, that there was this huge gap in my life and in the kids' lives. And I just collapsed in unbelievable grief. And when I, when I, you know, when I came back to the present moment, the two words came out of my mouth. I don't even know where they came from. But I just looked at Linda and I said, it's over. That was the end and it was the beginning of our recovery. Because although what was over was my working at the company, and like I said, the next day I turned in my resignation, I stayed on you know, for a couple of more months and I gave them a date that I would not be working anymore. That was over, but what wasn't over was my recovery from living the way I had lived for the past five or six years. And the next year of my life was the most difficult, painful year of my life. And both of you really had to go through a recovery process, which, which I would love for both of you to talk about. Well, when Charlie resigned from the job, I didn't really trust it at first. Of course, when he announced to me in the couples workshop that he was resigning, I burst into tears of joy. I was so happy. But the next day it hit me that they might be able to hook him back in again. Because what I was beginning to understand is that he was a flaming work addict. And, you know, work addiction is the invisible addiction because it gets applauded in our country, in our culture. It's significantly prized when people overwork. To, to the detriment of the family and their health. But when he showed me that he really meant business, that he wasn't going to get hooked back in, we sat down and we had some real heart-to-heart -heart talks. And he said, I've missed 
several years with some kids growing up. And I said, and I've missed several years of really doing something significant with my career. I'm a racehorse out of the starting gate here. I really want to do my career in a meaningful way. It's been a terrible loss to me. So we traded roles. And he was primary parent for the next year. And I had the experience of learning what it's like, the man's traditional role of providing for a family of five to earn enough money to pay the mortgage payment and put the food on the table and pay the gas in the car and the car insurance and all those things. And I never could have the appreciation that I do have now for what the provider of the family does, what an what enormous output of energy that is. We started our own business so we could make our own schedule. We made holy vows that we weren't going to work for anybody else, build somebody else's dream, and, you know, march their drum that no matter what it took, we were going to be in charge and independent of a corporation or any workplace. When Charlie said to me when we decided that we were going to trade roles, that he was going to play tennis every day and that he was going to train to run a marathon, I just silently giggled inside because I knew he didn't have any concept of what it took to run a household. And he soon found out. But it was a really wonderful and amazing experience for both of us. But I got to, I got to feel the kind of support for my career development that I had been missing for years while I was busy being the traditional wife taking care of the house and the kids and supporting his career development. So while he was really struggling that year after he left the company, I was soaring. I was so happy to have him home. And I was so happy that we were reunited as a family and that he was, you know, taking the lion's share of responsibility with the kids in the household and I was freed up because I had feared that the day was never going to come where the breakdown was going to become a breakthrough. I was getting more convinced as the months and the years went by that the breakdown was going to be a breakup. So the relief was tremendous for me and I'm glad we made it because we almost didn't make it. There were many times where I just was ready to call the divorce lawyer and say, I just can't do it anymore. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Linda and Charlie Bloom. They're, the, they're psychoanalysts. They've been leading couples workshops for about 30 years, and they're the authors of several books on relationships. And their latest is What Doesn't Kill Us, how one couple became stronger at the broken places. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Charlie, what was it like for you becoming the, the person at home taking care of the kids and doing the laundry and, and all that stuff, especially coming out of doing this amazing work that you were doing? Well, let's just say it was an adjustment. <laughs> that's a, that's a bit, bit of an understatement. 
But Linda's right. I really did have this crazy idea that, oh, man, now I'm, I'm on vacation. You know, all I have to do is basically, you know, handle the kids and, and I don't have to work these crazy hours anymore and fly all over the place. Well, as it turned out, I found out that it's not exactly a vacation or a picnic to manage a household and handle everything. You know, that saying, a woman's work is never done. Boy, I really got <laughs> the true meaning. I mean, how true that really is. It's like, at least when I was working, I knew at the end of the day that I was done. But, I mean, like, you're never done here. So that was a wake-up. But, of course, there was another side to it also. And the other side was I was so glad to be with the kids. Particularly, you know, early on. I mean, it was, it was so good to be feeling like... Of finally getting to make up for some of that lost time. But the other thing that made it really difficult was that I was a work addict. I was a workaholic, and I had an addiction. And, you know, with any addiction, there's a period of withdrawal when you no longer have access to the substance that you're using. And I went through a profound period of withdrawal that was characterized by a feeling of guilt, of shame, of depression, all the things that I was busy avoiding when I was fulfilling this, in my mind, this special, important role that I was doing that kind of made it possible for me to rationalize some of the things that I was doing in the training room, which I later felt very ashamed of in terms of coercing and manipulating people and the way in which I was neglecting my family and I went into a, a very deep depression and that made it of course a lot harder to fulfill my responsibilities at home because uh, anybody who's ever been depressed I mean I had had certainly my share of the blues or down days but what I found out was that a real depression is totally different than being in a down mood for a while it's just like having a weight on you that is so heavy that you, you can barely find the strength to get out of bed in the morning. And my depression got very, very bad. So that made that first year. That's why I said earlier, you know, that was the, the toughest year in my life. It wasn't just the adjustment to the role change and to withdrawing from the workaholic addiction, but it was also the depression that came into my experience, my awareness, that I hadn't experienced when I was busy feeding my addiction. So how long did that last? And it sounds like that depression was kind of a, was a, a sort of physiological grief that was manifesting in a way that I haven't really heard of before, although it, it's reminding me of some other experiences that came out of different circumstances and looked different, but actually in some ways physiologically look the same, but are not necessarily depression. So how long did that last for you? And because that kind of withdrawal from addiction doesn't usually take that long. So I'm curious. Oh, that, that, that's true. I mean, the depression wasn't just about the work addiction. The depression had other contributors to it. Other than that, the work addiction was certainly a you know, significant part of it. But it also had to do with experiences that I had had 
even before I started working, even before I met Linda. I mean, it, it, it was things in my life that I hadn't really come to terms with. I hadn't really allowed myself to clearly experience and to see things that I had, you know, tried to avoid in other ways than, you know, work addiction. So what happened was I didn't have the kind of defensive structure in my life anymore that could keep some of those denied feelings and experiences out of my awareness. And so they came up. And in terms of, you know, the question of how long did it last, again, kind of like the situation with my leaving my job, I can point to a, a very specific time that the depression really lifted. And it was almost exactly a year from the time that I left the job. And the shift happened when I took a bike ride with a friend of mine from San Francisco to LA. And on that bike ride, I really, you know, you said it was almost like physiological. I'm convinced that there was something in my body that not only was affected by the depression, but was actually in some ways causing or influencing the depression. Because on this bike ride in which I really pushed myself physically up to and beyond my limits on a daily basis for about a week, and somehow in that process, a few days into it, I really felt different. I mean, my body felt different. My mood was different. And by the time we finished the ride, I felt like I was back to myself again. And I'm not saying that that is the reason or that's how it happened, but that was the significant, that, the physical nature of that experience was definitely something that had some influence in altering my mood and my perspective. And that's when things started to lift for me. And I felt like I started getting my energy back again. I started feeling like my own self again. And that's when Linda and I started to collaborate on creating our own business. I'm torn between jumping into that new co-creative phase and touching on how that friend of yours who, who invited you on that bike trip coaxed you along because at the beginning... You ran into a wall. You ran into that that physiological <laughs> sure wall within yourself. And and how did he manage? How did he coax you into continuing? Because I think that's kind of revealing and could could be yeah. really beneficial for for people to hear about. You know, that, I'm glad you used that word because coax implies a gentleness. <laughs> he didn't pressure me, <laughs> but he did gently coax me to just give it a try because I was absolutely determined after the first day I was determined to quit in fact before the first day was over I was exhausted an hour into the trip so we had about 499 more miles to go and I was exhausted and I'm thinking I was absolutely insane to agree to this and you had an old funky my bike was a terrible, bike. terrible He didn't even have a good bicycle. I had, and this guy is practically a professional bike rider. He had a $4,000 racing bike. I had a you know, $150 Sears bike. I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know? <laughs> the whole thing was insane. But 
the way he coaxed me was he assured me that I could determine the pace that we went on and that I was probably tired. I had gotten tired pretty quickly because we were going too fast. And he told me, I made the mistake of taking the lead here and, and I just picked the wrong pace. So I want you to take the lead in the rest of the trip. And we'll go whatever pace you want. I don't care what it is. I'm not on this to break any speed records. I'm on this trip because I just want to hang with you. And I was still very, very reluctant. I said, Michael, if we go by my pace, you know, it's going to take us three months to get to L.A. I don't think you realize how slow I need to go. I had totally misjudged my own ability. I had never ridden more than 20 miles at a time. So he said, really, I mean it. I don't care how long it takes. And you take the lead, and we'll go at your pace. We'll take breaks when you want to take them, not when I want to take them. Because I don't care. I don't have any particular agenda on this except for us to just do this thing together. And he was relentless in his coaxing. I mean, I remember we stopped, it must have been for about an hour and a half, having this conversation. And eventually I just said, okay, all right. You know, I just got so tired of arguing with him. I said, okay, I'll try it. But if I say, I can't do this anymore, you've got to accept that. And he said, I will. I will. But, but at least give it a try. So, Ed. He sounds like a good therapist. He would have been. Yeah, Mike, Mike, I mean, it was great. It was just perfect. I mean, that would be like the best therapy that anybody could have given me at the time. Because I was so tired of having somebody else, the company, run my life. That was a big thing for me. Is I can no longer tolerate anything or anybody telling me what to do, when to do it, how to do it, how much time to spend. And that's what my life had been for the last six years. So I really trusted him when he said, I'm totally turning it over to you. I don't know how he knew that's what I needed to hear, but it was exactly what I needed to hear. And once I knew that I'm going to call the shots here, I'm going to determine, you know, when we take breaks and how long we go and we'll see how it goes. And if I feel like I don't want to do it anymore, I'll let them know. But I will give this one more try. So that was how we made it. And that was the best therapy I could have had is, is to get on the bike and just focus for a week on something. Sounds like he was really deeply listening to you and listening beyond just your words. Absolutely. He knew what I needed to hear from him, and he gave it to me. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this new building of a partnership with Linda and what you wanted to bring to your work and to people and what you learned through this ordeal, and also from those workshops that you did. I guess the first one was with Stephen and Andrea Levine, who are very well known. Um, I know Stephen recently passed away. And then you did a workshop with Joyce and Barry Vassell. What did you learn from them, and what did you learn along your way through this harrowing ordeal together that 
you emerged from and brought to your practice with clients and workshop participants? Thank you for asking. And, you know, everything that we learn in a really deep and meaningful way immediately flows into the work that we do and the contribution that we make to our students, to our counseling clients, and to our readership of our books and blogs. And just like Charlie learned how incredibly important physical fitness is for his mental health, as soon as we had a deep appreciation of that, that's one of the things that I offer when I work with clients now, is to make rigorous, regular exercise a part of your life for optimal mental and physical health. And what we learn during the ordeal of the company years is how incredibly important deepening the commitment is. A few minutes ago when you were talking to me, you said that the level of commitment that I had to hang in there in the difficult time was more than what you usually see. And I think that that makes all the difference, not just standing it and bearing the pain, but committing yourself to the process of working with what comes up. One of the most important things that I learned from Stephen and Andrea is that I was holding on too tight to my vision of what marriage and family life had to be. And then I needed to loosen up my white knuckle grip on that vision and really show up for, there was plenty of beauty in the marriage and family life that I had at the time, even though it didn't fit my ideal picture. And rather than being angry at Charlie because he wasn't, you know, husband charming, and being so angry at myself because I wasn't being mother charming, to really have some forgiveness and to practice non-attachment and letting go, to be able to enjoy the little time that we did have together. And so doing your own work immediately became cornerstone in the work that we do. Non-attachment, forgiveness, and letting go became foundational in our work. Commitment became foundational in our work. And, you know, it wasn't downhill all the time when he was a corporate guy. We had meaningful conversations and beautiful emotional and sexual intimacy periodically during that time. And those precious moments when we connected, we learned how to make every minute count because we had so little time together. We learned how to be very intentional and how to be very committed for going straight for the love and the little time that we had. And that came in to our course. The first course we ever taught was called Partners in Commitment because commitment was one of the big teachings from that ordeal time. We added in a whole module on how to fight fair and how to do conflict management well. We called it conscious combat, about speaking from your deep, tender, vulnerable feelings of hurt and pain and fear and loneliness, rather than the anger and the resentment which is full of judgment and criticism. Because we fought badly when we were so frightened and hurting, and we, we stayed in the game, trying to make our best effort be better. 
And so that's one of the things that we offer in our courses now because we learn from our own personal experience in a very profound and visceral way what really helps when you're in a dark time. I would love for you to go a little deeper into that because that is something that we don't generally get taught in this world. No, we don't. And nobody ever tells us that sometimes your marriage has to die in the form that it was before to have a rebirth of a new one. And so our marriage morphed, you know, from the one that we had known when we lived on the East Coast. We had kind of a, you know, we had a nice marriage for 12 years. Then we had a difficult challenge marriage for several years when we relocated. And then when he finally resigned from the company, we had an extraordinary, exemplary marriage for decades now we have had. And it was because we took the descent into the shadow hell realms that we were able to make the ascent have a deeper trust, a deeper bond, even than before the breach, you know, before the betrayal, before the breakdown. And it was because the pain brought us to our knees. And, you know, I never would have been motivated to go and seek spiritual practice and spiritual teachings from the most spiritually evolved people that I could learn from. It was the pain that motivated me to go do retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh and with Stephen and Andrea. I did many of them and with Joyce and Barry Vassell. And I, I went on a search. I went on an absolute quest for the best workshop leaders that I could find, for the best consultants that I could find, for the best personal growth and spiritual development books that I could find. And I studied them and I learned from them. When I went to Stephen and Andrea's workshop, they nailed me to the wall and confronted me about, I'm strong in holding on. (laughs) I'm strong in commitment, but I wasn't too good at letting go. And they said, you really need to take on the practice of doing forgiveness meditation And for a year, that was my most central spiritual practice, to sit in forgiveness for Charlie for not being the perfect, you know, father and husband that I wanted him to be, and to see his beautiful points, even though in some ways he was failing me, he still was the man that I'd fallen in love with, decided to have three kids with, and had hung in with. And he was doing exquisite work in the world. I knew that. And I was so proud of him, even though I missed him so much. He was growing and he was serving at a much higher level than he ever had before. And so doing my own work and doing my own practice and doing the forgiveness meditation of him, and what was even harder was doing the forgiveness meditation of myself, because I was so tired and because I was so resentful about being in the traditional mom and wife role. I wanted to be out there in the career world too. I had terrible envy of Charlie that his career was soaring while mine was, you know, withered down. And the hardest person for me to forgive was myself. And when I was irritable with the children, I felt so guilty and ashamed that I was a bad mother. And to be willing to accept that I was a good enough mother, that I was never going to get the Mother of the Year award, but I could be a good enough mother, and that was going to have to suffice under these challenging conditions. 
So I was listening to you talk about all those things. It occurred to me that one of the things that we each have to do for ourselves is we have to find our own personal balance of all these practices, that all these practices are great, but we each need different ones at different times and to find what works for us in in proper balance because we all are so different and have such different needs in different moments. And that That's exactly right. I'm so extroverted and having a friendship community meant so much to me. And when I got committed to finding a collection of my people, finding my flock, finding my tribe, getting a women's group going, I really started to do much better. I didn't have all my eggs in the family and the marriage basket. I saw how important having a community of support just to enjoy, you know, enjoy going out to eat, going to a movie, seeing some theater, taking a walk on the beach, that I could offset some of the loneliness that I was feeling about Charlie not being available to me by having other significant, deep and meaningful connections with friends in my life. And that was so important for me to to create that. Toward the end of the book, you write something about the magical experience and process of co-creativity. I would love for you to talk more about that. Well, when we were able to make the changes and structural changes in our lives, it enabled us to have more control over our schedules and how we spent our time so that we could do the things that we needed to do to keep a balance not only within the family and within our relationship but within ourselves we realized like linda said that once we got unhooked from our dependence on an external system to provide for our material needs and we had the freedom and of course the responsibility for doing that ourselves we were really liberated from that kind of dependence and we were able to sit down and ask questions that we couldn't ask when there was an employer who who was determining how we were going to spend our time and so we were able to ask questions like okay so what is it that's important to us personally individually and collectively and what is it that you know how can we best meet the needs and the values that we have what kind of a structure do we want to create in our lives that will best support this rather than feeling like well we need to fit into this system that the company or you know our boss is telling us we need to fit into now we get to create a a life that's going to fit into our needs rather than shape our needs to fit into the outside structure So that's a question that we both had to answer individually, but also collectively, because we were interdependent at a level now that we never had been before. We were working as partners. We were a team of two, and we were both mutually dependent upon each other to work to fulfill the needs of the system itself, the family system, which includes emotional well-being, financial well-being, material well-being. I mean, you know, the, the good news is that we have the power now to do that, 
And the challenge in doing that is that <laughs> we've got to do it. Uh, nobody is going to provide that for us. So the interdependence and the co-creativity came from the awareness that we are both absolutely responsible to each other in order to create this system together. That We both knew that neither one of us could do it alone. And we also both knew that we were bringing different and complementary skills and talents and abilities into the picture. So, you know, we're, we're both very much aware that there is no way that either one of us could have created the system that we have now that is so adequately meeting our needs. There's no way that either one of us could do it alone because we need the strengths of each other that we don't have within ourselves. And what we've been able to do in the co-creative part of this is not only to lean on each other's strengths, but also to learn from each other how we can develop some of those strengths more within ourselves. So both of us are more internally balanced than we used to be because we used to just, we had this separation of roles and responsibilities, which is fine, but we didn't think of it in terms of, well, how can I develop some of the strengths that Linda's got that I lean on her or I depend upon her to do? She'll always be more organized than me. <laughs> She'll always have more attention to detail than me. She'll always be more extroverted and outgoing than me. I mean, th these are just differences that we have. But through the interdependence that we've developed and, and through the co-creative process, we've both become more able to develop some of those strengths that the other one has. And what we teach when we teach couples workshops is we talk to people about the possibilities of what is available when two people can create a truly co-creative partnership, when they are interdependent rather than just codependent. And we're a living example of what that can be. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's possible even for people who don't believe it's possible. Like I was one of those people who didn't believe it was possible. But it is. Some people are under the false impression that hitting the intimacy stage in relationship is the top of the charts. And they don't realize that co-creativity is the top of the charts. And the belief has to be there, first of all, that you can make it to that stage. And then once you believe that it's possible, the interest level and the motivation level can soar up to, and how are we going to do that? Because people have moments of co-creativity and then, you know, they relapse and they can't, they can't stay there consistently. So there's some price of admissions. You have to own up to what your signature strengths are and then bring them to the party and know what your partner's signature strengths are and learn from those. So one of the themes of our workshops when we work with couples is not only, you know, tolerating the differences, but really respecting the differences 
and having curiosity and wonder about those strengths that your partner has and how they can enhance your own life. Charlie mentioned that I'm detail-oriented, but I own it. That is a strength of mine, and keeping track of the bills and inflows into the you know account and the outflows into the account and keeping track of people's names, addresses, and phone numbers for emails for the, the database, all that's an important part of keeping the business flowing. But he's a champ at the grand overview, so he can see far and wide in ways that I need his assistance and his strength to be able to see the big picture. So this is one of the things that we bring to our classes about how to utilize each other's strengths and learn from each other. And when the differences are not held in that kind of a frame, they can be divisive, they can be problematic to the point where people separate and divorce and let go of a relationship that has tremendous potential because they are not really seeing it from the grander view that we're in each other's life to really bring us to a place of each of us towards mastery by learning about the areas that are weak suits. One of the things that I'm strong in is I've been more open about my life personally. And When Charlie was first teaching with me and I outed him a lot by bringing up personal material of ours, in the class, he was daunted by that. But as we kept getting feedback from our students that that's what stood out from them, that we had been there, we'd been in the trenches, we'd gone into the shadow realms, and we lived to tell the tale of how we came up after making the descent into the hell realms, into the light. And that's what seemed to really touch them. And it inspired them that if those people could do it, we could do it too. And in time, Charlie became more revelatory, and it's become one of his core teachings, and I think it's especially important for the men to hear, not, not to hide behind the image, to be more transparent and to allow yourself to be seen more. And you really can't have the kind of intimacy that's soul-nourishing until you first have an intimate experience with yourself and know who you are and then be willing to expose that. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and that's one of the most powerful aspects of this new book of yours, is how you reveal. Yeah, pretty raw, pretty personal. We reached it right out there. It took years to get brave enough to, for me to stick that stuff out there. But people are giving us tremendously positive feedback about how raw it is and how beautiful it is making the descent, the really happy ending. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Linda and Charlie Bloom. They're psychotherapists, and they've been leading couples workshops for about 30 years. They're the authors of several books on relationships, and their latest book is What Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. You also had quite a shock occur in your life after things started to turn 
way to the better in your own personal life and in your relationship when you were diagnosed with breast cancer. How did that change your lives? How did that affect everything? Well, I can look back at it now and see that my breast cancer diagnosis was a blessing. It sure didn't feel like it at the time. I was scared that I wasn't going to live to raise my children the rest of the way. My daughter was only 11 years old when I was diagnosed at 44, so I was pretty frightened. And it was metastatic cancer, so it wasn't, you know, just in my breast. It was also had migrated to the lymph node. I was bald as a cue ball, and I didn't have any hair from chemotherapy. I was too sick to work for a while, but I got my strength back, and it really was an awakening to how badly I wanted to make a contribution. And because I thought I wasn't going to live to 50, I thought we better put this wisdom that we've accumulated on tapes. And so we did a series of evening workshops, and we taped 24 evening workshops. And fortunately, I have been living, you know, about 25 years now. And so we were able to write the books. But it really was a wake-up call that we don't have forever to get on with it, whatever our it is. And if there's something that we want to experience, we better do it now because we're not guaranteed of a future. I feel like my cancer was a, a huge opening and deepening in my relationship with Charlie that he appreciated me in a way that he never had before. After he left the company, I started to feel valued again and feel prized and feel like I was number one in his life, not you know relegated to inferior status when the company had the number one spot. But I'll tell you, I, I really got a boost up there in terms of being valued when he thought that I might die early and that we wouldn't have time to experience a lot, but I can let him speak about that. Yeah, that was um, that was a wake-up call to me. Like a lot of people, I uh, had taken certain things for granted, and one of the things that I assumed, because statistically this seems to be true, is, is that um, uh, I'm probably going to be the first one to go since men have shorter lifespans. So it never even occurred to me that Linda could go first. And then all of a sudden, we have this experience with her cancer. And I remember being in the doctor's office when he was reviewing the results of the biopsy with us and then telling us that this is malignant, it's metastatic. Well, no, he didn't know that at the time. That wasn't until she had her surgery. But that this type of cancer is an aggressive, rapidly growing cancer. And then he started giving us statistics about life expectancy, you know, after two years or after five years, if you get to that, and the numbers were going down. And at some point, I just kind of checked out. And I guess it must have shown up on my face. Because he said to me, he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, are you okay? And I, I said, no. I'm not okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're basically, you're telling me that it's more likely that my wife is going to die within the next five years or less than she's going to live. No, I'm not okay at all. And that was a profound wake-up call to me. And the first thing that I thought of, because this was not very long after I quit, 
the first thing I thought of was, oh God, am I going to have enough time to make up for my years of neglect? And what I realized I wanted more than anything else was to have time to really give Linda the kind of attention and love that I had neglected to give her to make up for lost time. And I just got absolutely terrified by the possibility that I might not and totally committed to, uh, I can't waste a moment here. I cannot indulge in some of the things I used to indulge in when I took her for granted. And that was a commitment that really was dominant in my life for quite a long time. I mean, it's still one of the most important things to me but I don't have that same sense of urgency anymore because I feel like if I died without having given more to her or if she died now, I would feel totally different than I would have if I had lost her shortly after the diagnosis. So I just have tremendous gratitude that I was given the time, that we were given the time to spend together and that I finally came to my senses enough to appreciate how much I value Linda and to find so many creative ways to show it. And I'm the happy beneficiary. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone who reads the book, me especially, really get all of that from reading. Well, it's so good to hear that you do, because that's what we, we had hoped in writing it, that people would really see that this is real, what we're talking about here. And it's not only real for us, but it's possible for just about anybody. It is possible. Most people don't get to a place as broken down as we did, but even though we did get to that place, we were still able to, you know, rise up out of the ashes. And it is possible for people, and that's what we want to leave people with. And that's another really, really big thing that in our culture we usually think of breaking and falling apart as a really bad thing, but the most amazing things become possible when we break open, despite how difficult and painful it can be. That's exactly right. And when we sometimes are forced to make a descent into the shadow realms because of illness or being downsized out of a job or going through some difficult period with one of our kids or a family member. You know, it could be anything. It could be a divorce. It could be a loss. It could be a health crisis. But when we're forced to go into those shadow realms, to open to the possibility that there could be some beauty that could come from it, There could be an awakening. There could be teachings that are really going to be so valuable that they will inform the rest of our life until we're forced out of a body. But sometimes people just, you know, stand it. They just bear it. They just want to get back to what they knew before. And, you know, sometimes we don't get to go back to what we knew before. But sometimes the new normal, after the transition through the darkness, can be better than it was before. That's possible depending on how we utilize it. And Charlie, there's a really beautiful line in the book from you 
where you redefine strength for yourself as being able to keep your heart open in hell while you're going through that descent. Yeah. I think that most of us do go through some version of a descent in our lives, and it's often more than once. And to be able to see, I know this is kind of like a cliché, but it really is an opportunity. And it's hard to appreciate the opportunity aspect of the experience when you go through it. And so the, the impulse is to shut down, close off, and minimize the pain of that experience. And if we can find the clarity to be able to stay open, even in the face of that even in the face of our resistance to experiencing that pain, if we can somehow find the ability, just feel it. You don't have to do anything except just let yourself be informed by the experience. It sucks. It hurts. We don't want to. But there's a reason why we're feeling this. There's a reason why we're being given this experience, this pain, is something to learn, and we don't necessarily even learn it in our conscious awareness. We can learn it without even being aware of what we're learning, just by staying open to it. That's what keeping your heart open in hell means to me. And it's not, it's not easy to do. It's, as I say, it's a cultivated taste. But when you see that there's really some incredible value in just being able to feel it, it makes it a little bit easier to do that. And Linda, you have a line in here that's also really wonderful. You say, I learned that making room for all the contradictory and difficult feelings was possible. I just had to grow bigger to make space for them all. Yeah, I was expanded I was stretched. I, I was forced to grow bigger. I stopped having such linear thinking. You know, I've got a concrete sequential mind. And so this really stretched me beyond the either or thinking, beyond the good and bad thinking, beyond the right and wrong, beyond the victims and persecutors. And so I was able to jump up to another level of understanding that, you know, during that very painful time, it wasn't really Charlie's fault. He was just doing what he had to do for his own personal development. And I hated it, and there were times when I hated him. But I was loving him in the same moment that I was hating him. It was because I loved him so much and missed him so much and was so lonely for him that I was hating my life then. And so to make room for it all is that, you know, we're all a mixed bag. And I wasn't a bad mother. Yeah, I was irritable with my kids sometimes, but I still was devoted to them and doing the absolute best that I could. And that we're all doing the best we can at any given moment at the level of consciousness that we've arrived at. And so making room for it all for me was about making room for the shadow part of my life 
And that didn't mean that my life was all downhill and it was all rotten and it was all a waste and it was all, you know, a mess. That, that part of my life was a mess and that there was beauty there and that was just a thought away. If I had enough presence of mind to open to all of it. And even during the worst of it, when we were having the ugliest fights, you know, like the 4th of July fight that we had, it was bona fide ugly. But it was because I loved Charlie so much and wanted so badly for us to be a family. So that's one of the things that we attempt to teach when we teach our classes, that you open and you stretch and you make room for as much as you possibly can both the golden part of your life and room to show up for the shadow part of your life. And it's all of that. Well, what is the role of those shadow parts of our lives? And what is it that makes them so scary? Well, we all grow up, and I'm not just talking about me and Linda or even people in this culture. Every single culture has certain qualities that they value in people and certain qualities that they devalue and even demonize. And, you know, there's the larger culture that we live in that includes everyone in the country. But then there's subcultures. There's the subculture of the family, the subculture, of, in my case, for example, of the company that I work for, the subculture of our religion, the subculture of our neighborhood even. So every culture is going to influence us to either feel proud or ashamed or embarrassed by certain aspects of our personality. And so we all learn to put certain things in the foreground, to emphasize certain things depending upon what culture we're operating in at the time, or other things that, you know, are not valued that we don't want to necessarily bring into people's attention. And the, the problem with putting things in the shadow is that the shadow represents whatever it is that we're not in touch with, that we don't want to reveal, that we feel we may be judged for, that are problematic for us. And the problem with putting things in there is that it splits our awareness to different categories. What I can accept and what I reject. And whatever I reject will go into the shadow. And as long as it's in there, until I can come to terms with that, that denied, those denied qualities and aspects of myself are going to leach out energy and they're going to affect my sense of who I am. And they're going to contribute to feelings of unworthiness or self-judgment or anxiety about other people's judgments. It just takes a lot of energy to keep things in the shadow. And it, and it also, it just doesn't feel good. We don't feel authentic. We can never fully experience being loved by somebody as long as there are parts of us that we haven't allowed them to see. We, we will always continue to feel like if you really knew me, then you wouldn't say that about me. You wouldn't feel that way. So our relationship, I mean, a primary relationship is the perfect place to find out one way or the other whether you are truly loved by another person. And that's 
to allow them to know about your shadow, to give yourself permission to allow your shadow to be revealed. That doesn't mean that we indulge in destructive behavior. It doesn't mean that we do things that are hurtful to each other or to ourselves or to other people. It just means that we don't try to conceal parts of ourselves and we find out whether our partner can handle that or not. And that's how we can finally come to terms with with who we are and feel like if I'm loved by somebody, I'm really loved and they know me. I really appreciate your questions, Tony, in our talk today. And it's been a pleasure going over some of these experiences that we've had. Yes, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. I love the work that you're doing. I love the example that you're providing for all of us. And Linda, do you have any final words in this last minute or so? Well, I want your listening audience to know that we come to New England every January because we teach at Cropalo in Lenox, Mass up in the Berkshire Mountains. And if they feel that they would like to do a workshop with us, they just have to go to our website, bloomwork.com, and where we're teaching and what we're teaching is there and our phone number and our email addresses on our website so people can always get in touch with us. And I like to invite people to let their imagination be big for their life and particularly for their romantic partnership. Because I think it's such a waste when people don't have lofty goals for, for their life and for their relationship. And there's so many possibilities. And there's so much good help available for people who are dazed and confused about how to make a relationship work at an optimal level. There are wonderful workshops and there are wonderful books and there's all kinds of, you know, TED Talks and YouTube videos and consultants available. And if they haven't had a good model in their family of origin, oh well, a lot of us didn't get a good start and we didn't have a good model in our family of origin. And so we can fill in the holes where we didn't get good modeling from our parents. If they had known better, they would have taught us better, but they didn't have good models either. But we can make a collage out of the people in our life who have good relationships and learn from the graduating class ahead of us about how to have relationships that are really wonderful and the ways in which we can bring out the best in each other. And that's a wonderful contract to make with a partner or even with a friend to encourage each other to bring out the best in each other. Yes, beautifully said and a beautiful note to end on. This has been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it very much. And be continued. Yes. And again, thank you and keep going. You're going to keep on going. I have no intention of retiring. I'm enjoying what I'm doing too much. I can't imagine anything I would want to do more. So do you think you'll be writing any more books? Absolutely. We hope to have another book out next year. 
and the working title is From Conflict to Connection. We find so many couples struggling with how to negotiate for their needs and how to respect the differences that I feel like I must write this one. Mm. Well, I look forward to that, and we'll talk about that then. Great. I look forward to that. Me too. So again, thank you so much, and be well. You too, and thank you for inviting us. Oh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Linda and Charlie Bloom. They're psychotherapists. They lead couples workshops around the country. And they're the author of several books on relationships. Their latest book is What Doesn't Kill Us, How One Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.